Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to Cars.com. It's magical. titles in six years. Yes, it is worth cheering for. Yeah, that intro sounds a lot better, doesn't it? Much, much more updated for the upcoming hockey season, right? I'm Dave Melton, managing editor here at Second City Hockey. I'm back with a little programming update for you just as we enter the heart of the hockey offseason where nothing's probably going to happen, even though it's early November, but, you know, it's 2020. So since there's really not much news to talk about, our midweek Musings on Madison shows are going to take a bit of a break for a while until something happens that's worth talking about. But we're going to revive our Friday shows, where we do some longer in-depth discussions with people from in and around the hockey world. Our first guest for the 2020 offseason is an excellent one. It's Jay Zawoski. If you're in the Chicago area, you're probably familiar with him. You heard his voice on AM670 The Score, where he's an executive producer. You may also have heard him as the co-host of the Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast and the I'm Fat Podcast. He's also the author of Big 50, The Men and Moments That Made the Chicago Blackhawks, which is available everywhere this coming Tuesday, November 10th. Jay was kind enough to sit down for a bit with Brandon Kane and I to discuss that book, the current state of the Blackhawks, and of course some food thoughts. So thank you so much for tuning in. Enjoy this Friday show, and we'll have plenty more coming for you through the rest of the offseason here on the Second City Hockey Podcast Network. I know, it, it totally, like, I've been here for like two years and it just happened to work out very well there. Dave Melton and Brandon Kane, we're here with you this evening, and a very special guest is with us on the Second City Hockey Airwaves tonight. He's an executive producer and the resident Blackhawks guy at AM670 The Score in Chicago, co-host of the Madhouse podcast, co-host of the I'm Fat podcast, and the biggest reason why he's here tonight is because he's the author of the Big 50, The Men and Moments That Made the Chicago Blackhawks, available everywhere on Tuesday, November 10th. It is Jay Zawoski. Jay, thanks for joining us tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you guys for having me on. I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about the book and uh, whatever else you want to. There's yeah. so much going on in the world of hockey right now. Just <laughs> I know it's it's so I still haven't gotten around the fact like it's November. We should be already putting the season in the books or doing playoff projections based off whatever the Blackhawks are doing at this point in the season. Yeah, it's it feels lonely, doesn't it? It, it just <laughs> it feels so it's, far it's, away, but who knows? Yeah, it's weird. Like this is usually you know, football, basketball and hockey are all going and right now it's just football on Sundays and that's okay I guess it'll work yeah for my fantasy team it's okay but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly so the the first question we have and obviously this is the most important thing that was on your mind is uh where is Jeremy Morin on this list <laughs> uh I don't know if he's even mentioned in there <laughs> I'm trying to think okay. if there if I would have him in there at any point I wrote the book 
I finished it over, just under a year ago. So it's oh, been okay. a process of I had it done. Then, of course, it has to be edited a few times. Then right. we want to let the season play out to edit the stats. And then, of course, that went on until September instead of, oh yeah, uh, you know, April. So I had to do that. Then I went to print. So it's been a while. I, I did have a chapter. I do have a chapter in there where I just sort of rattle off names of bad Blackhawks of like, oh, that the would dark be- ages. Here are the guys you, uh, this was a significant portion of Blackhawks history was watching yeah. guys like Joseph Marha and Rito Von Arks and J.Y. LaRue and all these. Dean McCammon. And, yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. And Dean McCammon was, well, he was one of the more important Hawks in that era. That just tells you how bad they were mm-hmm. when he was one of their exactly. more reliable players. So, yeah, there are some some throwback names in there. I'm not sure if Jeremy Morin is in there specifically, but he might be. He might be. In I'm, there. I'm, that's going to be the first name I look for now when I get the book. So, <laughs> so in serious questions, though, when you were taking on – this seems like such a monumental task to take a team that has about 100 years of history and to confine it to one book that's not 3,000 pages long – so how did you even get started on this whole process? After talking to the people at Triumph Books, my mindset was, and I needed approval for this, obviously, because it's their project. They're the ones who are mm-hmm. hiring me. I said, there's been so much written about the Hawks of old. There's dozens of books about Stan Makita and Bobby Hull and Keith Magnuson right. and all those things. I wanted to put more of a focus on the more recent era of Blackhawks hockey. I think mm-hmm. people associate those teams with me because of the my proximity to them uh, with my job with my podcasts so I, I think I have more of an association I have more of a knowledge I never saw Stan play I never saw Bobby play so that was sort of my mindset and then when I did address the older guys which of course you have to do if you're doing the 50 men and moments I wanted to make sure that I was doing my best to tell a story that maybe you haven't heard yet about Stan Mikita or about Bobby Hull or about Keith Magnuson. I read their uh, biographies or their autobiographies, trying to find a little bit of a anecdote about them and sort of what made them tick and uh, maybe some pivotal moments in their careers that are beyond just, he had a really hard slap shot. He was a really great two way <laughs> forward, right, right. et cetera. What was it, What made these men interesting? What made them great Blackhawks? And I, I hope that I, I, that the people reading the book, no matter lo- how long they've been Hawks fans, I hope people learn something new while reading this. So outside of obviously people within the Blackhawks organization, players, coaches, trainers, and all that, were there any sources outside of the Blackhawks organization that you consulted for this and any, any ones that were, maybe you got a good story or two from people that were unexpected? Uh, I wouldn't say unexpected. The people that were really, really helpful to me were Steve Rosenblum and Barry Rosner, two guys whose writing I really enjoy, two guys who know and love the Blackhawks, and uh, especially Rosenblum I leaned on early. I think the first five or six chapters I sent to him and said, hey, like, what do you think about this? It's like, is this okay. anywhere near what a book should be? Because I've never <laughs> done this before ever. Yeah, I, I don't know how to write a book. I mean, I know how to write, and basically this book is a collection of essays. So to have their expertise to lean on was great. The other guy who was a really good resource is Bob Verdi, who actually works for the oh, Blackhawks, yeah. but he's a walking Blackhawks encyclopedia. And what was mm-hmm. great was there were a few times where I said, all right, Bob, I, I have a couple versions of this old story. Does any of this ring a bell to you? Does any of this sound familiar? He'd say, all right, let me think about it. Let me get back to you. Okay, great. So a day or two would come by, he'd call and say, okay, I talked to Glenn Hall and here's what Glenn <laughs> Hall had to say about the situation. <laughs> 
I'm like, what? You talked to Glenn Hall? Like, holy cow. Yeah, he just, just calls him up. And it must yeah. Have the, yeah, has the number handy. And he, and he said, like, so this this is right. This part, he doesn't really remember, but he says it sounds like it could be correct. And it was just – that was the coolest thing is using those guys who have been covering the game so long as not only mentors but as resources, mm-hmm. you know. And, and that, was, that was super, super helpful. And it made it a lot of fun because, you know – I think of I've been watching hockey religiously for I'm 42 now, so probably about 36 years. I think it's when my fandom really began, like in my mid-teens, um, and uh, 26 years rather. My math is bad, um, <laughs> but uh, to, to rely on guys who watched the game so closely for so long that was a huge, huge help. Was there anything you know from when you were growing up that you looked up and you kind of had a different view of as a child and then going back now and researching it you saw like oh I might have misinterpreted this or my memory uh yes uh in the book I forgive Chris Chelios um oh uh because you know when you're you're spending so much time reflecting on the long history uh like you mentioned Dave of this team and you remind yourself of all of the words fumbles and all of the words mistakes that he made over the years. And it was really hard to see Chris Chelios wear a Red Wing sweater for mm-hmm. me, for a lot of Hawks fans. He, you know, him and Ronick were my two favorites and to see them both go was really, really hard. But I, I had some personal feelings about Chelios bringing the cup to Chicago and hoisting it in front of Hawks fans at Wrigley field. I took that sort of personally. Yeah. When really. Yes. Everybody that wins the cup brings the cup to their hometown and shows it off around town. But to me, to have Chelios do that to Hawks fans was tough. And I, I took that personally. Like, he is sticking it to me. But in hindsight, he's got every right to do that because the Hawks screwed him. They're the ones who decided he was too old to play. Then he went and played, what, like 13, 14 more years in Detroit, won a couple cups. I mean, it's, it's so over time I've forgiven myself about Chris Chelios. And when you look back on it, with history and fresh in your mind, you can, and instead of your raw emotions, you can be a little more objective about things. And I think Chelio specifically is the one thing where I really, uh, I really sort of had a change of heart while writing the book. There's several, if you, if you Google, I mean, I, I, I beg you not to, um, <laughs> but I wrote a couple <laughs> sort of scathing things about Chris Chelios uh, over yeah. the years for Chicago now or for the score. Uh, but in the book, I, I sort of, uh, I put that to rest. We'll see yeah, how long it lasts. That's the era of Blackhawks hockey that I'm most interested in because everything that's happened in the last 10, 15 years is pretty well documented at this point. And I, I went to my first Hawks game in 97, I think. It was the year, the fall after Roenick left town. So mm-hmm. I got really out into hockey as the Hawks went into the tank. And I was still relatively young at that time, so I didn't really – It's you can't really know all the workings of what's going on behind the scenes. And as I've gotten older and, like, looked up some stuff in hindsight – like some of the stories that have come out of that time are just the coach Sutter with Tyler Arneson having a mm-hmm. fist fight at a strip club or at a bar. Um, a G, the George McPhee, who is now with the Golden Knights, punching a Blackhawks head coach in the locker room after a preseason game. Like all these stories that come out. So I, I don't want you to, you know, give away the book, but was there any, anything about that particular era of Blackhawks hockey that you, you learned something about, or maybe you just had reinforced how bad things were? Some of the stories about Mike Keenan are Ooh. just comical. Okay. And 
uh, there's a story in the book of a, I'm not going to give it away. I want people to read it, but a hawk literally chasing Keenan out of the locker room, uh, threatening to kill him. I think if I'm recalling the story correctly, he had one skate on and one skate off. So he's chasing him down the concrete <laughs> corridor, uh, threatening to kill him. And if you look back at those uh, Mike Keenan rosters, you could probably guess the defenseman. I'll give you that. I'll give you that far. Okay. Um, but there's a lot of Mike Keenan stories, a lot of Mike Keenan anecdotes. And I think we all saw him as like, okay, he's a hard ass. You know, he's like a Ditka. These guys did not like Mike Keenan. And I know towards the end with uh, Ditka, some guys got resentful of all the endorsements mm-hmm. he was getting and stuff, but there were a lot of Hawks that did not like Mike Keenan personally. Chelios is one. The guy who the story's about is another. I'll let you guys read about it, but uh, some of the Mike okay. Keenan stories were a trip. And uh, you, <laughs> you got your stories mixed up there, by the way. It was uh, Sutter was in a bar with Tyler Ernest and Tootsie's in Nashville. Theo okay. Fleury was in a strip club in Columbus. Okay, yeah. That, that, there's another story there. <laughs> There, there were so many good ones. I forget them all. Mixed oh up. man, it's just so many embarrassing stories from that era where, like the flurry thing. Wow, they signed a bit. And how many times in that era, they signed Doug Gilmore, who's now old and not nearly the player he was. They signed Theo Flurry, who is, you Paul know, coffee. Hank, Clark. Oh, <laughs> coffee. Paul Coffee, Wendell Clark. Yes, those are yeah. those are some of the Hall of Famers that have played for the Blackhawks. Peter Bonja scored his 500th goal. Yes, he did. <laughs> what a moment! Who could forget it? Yeah. literally everyone <laughs> so there's a lot of um i guess kind of fanfare on twitter for um steve larmer and, and frank graham um what did you learn about their careers writing this book and was there anything that kind of stuck out to you that um was either new information or kind of like oh like i knew this it just needed to be like reinforced to establish you know how important they were yeah, I think uh, Larmer especially, when you break it all down, how he's not in the Hall of Fame, and I knew he should be in the Hall of Fame, but when you really sit down and write the essay about Steve Larmer and you lay the case out, it's laughable that he's not in. And mm-hmm. one of the big edits I had to make in the book was Doug Wilson because the whole chapter in there was how the hell is Doug Wilson not in the hall of fame? Then he got in. I'm like, well, crap, I got to go sort of rewrite this. Or we may have done it as, as simply as like, and in the summer of 2020, he was elected to the hall of fame, Wait, or he finally got his call, whatever. But those two specifically, and now with Wilson in it's Larmer's turn. And I think Larmer's biggest problem was, and it's not a problem, but I think what kept him out was his personality. He was just sort of a, no nonsense guy. Everybody called him Gramps because he was sort of old beyond his years, mm. uh, soft spoken, would never really ser- seek the spotlight at all. He was just a really good player for a really long time on a lot of really good teams, played with really great line mates. That's a factor, too. I just think that if people look at this objectively, there's no argument for Steve Armour to not be in the Hall of Fame. And, uh, you know, I, I know there's a lot of people who are more passionate about those things than I am. But after writing that chapter on Gramps, uh, Steve Larmer, I'm starting to become passionate about it because it's 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 almost laughable that he's not in. Yeah, yeah you like- Ab can kind of you know tag team that effort then. He's always- oh, yeah, T- T- Tab is the king of the Steve Larmer Hall of Fame Society. Uh, <laughs> I bow to him. He he that guy stays on it all the time, and he's right. He's right. Tab is absolutely right about it. Larmer should be in, and then the discussion begins of. 
should he have his number retired? I don't know, because you're going to start getting in that territory now where as Taves and Kane and Keith and Seabrook and Crawford and, and Hosa and all these guys sort of wrap up their careers, you're going to have to have a bunch of new numbers retired if you're going by the criteria used to retire the other guys. I, at least four of those guys have to have their numbers retired. So mm-hmm. I don't know if Larmer's shot is coming anytime soon, but who knows? They're always looking for a promotion. We'll see what happens. I assume, you know, the first 10, 15, maybe 20 items on this list were probably relatively easy. You know, the Stanley Cups, the drafting of players like Taves and Kane, um, and even like the Chelios trade is a big moment in franchise history. When did it start to get difficult to narrow it down to 50? Was it around like 30, 40, maybe the last one? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I think in the way I wrote it, I gave myself some flexibility to cover several things in a single chapter. So. One of the chapters is called The Depth of the Dynasty, where I talk about Nicholas Jalmerson and Dave Boland. And I sort of I accomplish all these sort of players okay. in one swoop, right? So that gave me some freedom for some different sort of things. So one of my favorite chapters I wrote about is the old Blue Line program. And I don't know if you guys remember that. It was sold outside the United Center. It was taken, it was sort of reinvented by Sam Fells. When I, I'm familiar with the Fells version of yes. it. I think I was just too young for the prior uh, inclination of that. So Sam's uh, committed Indian, later faxes from Uncle Dale, was a homage to the blue line. Mm-hmm. And so I did, I, it's, I sort of did a chapter about, you know, alternate voices for the fans talking about those sort of things. And then later on, I was very active on a website called blackhawkzone.com. I oh, made yeah. lifelong friends there. Yes. So just sort of the evolution of different resources for Hawks fans. So towards the end, I did have a little bit of flexibility. I wrote about Dan Carcillo's post hockey, um, you know, ventures, I guess you would say. Mm-hmm. And I spoke to him about, you know, the, the marijuana initiatives he has and, and some of the mental health things he's gone through and uh, the things he's advocating for. So there, there are some things where I got to stretch my legs and do something a little different because again, that was important to me to sort of highlight things that maybe have not been highlighted yet. So you mentioned Dave Boland there, and he wrote the forward for you. Uh, what was the conversation like to, to get him to do that? And I guess what was, uh, what was the thing of, you know, wanting this to be included by him um, opposed to, you know, maybe some other former Hawk? Yeah, so Dave and I did a number of bar events together as the dynasty was really sort of coming in the form. And I'd say probably over the course of three, four years, we probably did 50 of these things together. <laughs> So he had a bit of a comfort level with me, uh, I with him. I will say, Dave, it probably took a season of us doing these things together for him to get comfortable, for him to open up. And, but, he, you know, remember, he's 23 years old at a time. He's sort of growing yeah. into himself as a, as a man and as a leader and all those things. And as we got more comfortable together, he got better and better. The interviews got better and better. So I reached out and I said, hey, I, I'm writing this book. I... I know you better than anybody on this, in this dynasty. Would you be willing to do this? He was the first guy I asked and he said, yes. So I, I just think that he is such a big part of their, I mean, obviously 2013 is huge and he's just sort of symbolized what I think a lot of people overlook about those cup teams was, yeah, they were loaded with star players, but their depth, their third line, their fourth line, the versatility of those guys, you know, their bottom four defensemen, they were top-level players on other teams, or they would have been. 
And I think Dave Bowman really represents that sort of a player where whatever you needed him to do, he did. He did it well. He did it hard. And, uh, you know, you sort of talk about the glorified Blackhawk, who I sort of would, even looking now, I would say is probably Keith Magnuson. That's the guy who embodies what Hawks fans romanticize as, a, you know, the, the perfect Blackhawk. Mm-hmm. Bowen is very close to that to me. The irritant, the, the grinder. And I think he represents what I loved about those teams, those three cup teams, uh, maybe more than anybody. Now he wasn't my favorite player, but I think that he disembodied the spirit of those teams very well. That's why I asked him uh, along with my relationship with him. Well, as, as the resident Dave Boland Stan at the second city hockey website, I'm very much looking forward to reading that. And, only like 10% because of the first name, but you know, <laughs> it helps. <laughs> but like, like you said, Jay, like the, the way he played, like there, there was something watching him piss off Joe Thornton in that one in the playoff series in 2010. I think mm-hmm. that crystallized everything that I enjoyed about Dave Bowen. As you were researching this, I, I imagine there, there's some players that maybe you had, you maybe had oversold or either undersold in your mind as, as far as their contributions to the Blackhawks. Were there any, any players that really stood out in your mind that you, that, upon further research did way more or way less than you'd initially thought? I wouldn't say that specifically, but I would say it felt to me like Chelios and Ronick and Belfour were Blackhawks forever. And when you look back on it, they really weren't here that long when you compare them to the guys who are part of the dynasty now and Makita and Hull and those guys who played decades for the Hawks. Those guys were there for relatively short periods of time, and, and it was probably just because of my age, the way time passes when you're a kid right. slash teenager. You know, life just goes by slower when you're younger. So it felt like they were there forever. They felt like they were quintessential Blackhawks, and they are, but I think I was sort of surprised saying, wow, they, that's really all the time they played here. I swear it felt like more than that, and I felt like they had accomplished more than that, and they really hadn't. So I think that was sort of the thing was the realization of not just how little they were with the team, but how much the current core has been with the franchise. Yeah. And, and that was more of the era where players spent 10, 12, right. 15 years with the team. Like that doesn't happen now. And Taze and K now are the very much the exception to that rule. So yeah, that's, I like, I just looked up Ronick. He, he spent eight, eight yeah. years with the Blackhawks and he played for 20 years. So more than half of his career was outside of the city. So, right. Yeah. And it, I, it's funny when people think of Jeremy Roenick, I still think 99% of hockey fans, when they picture him in their mind's eye, it's him in a Hawks Jersey. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah, that, that was, that's was sort of, uh, I mean, not surprising. I know how long he was here, but just, wow. In comparison to the, to the current core and to the, to the really old legends, their times here were relatively short. Or they think of Ronick in NHL 94, right? Oh, I wrote a chapter about him. I, of I, did, I, did, I did a bunch there of sidebars. Yeah, there's a, there's a bunch of sidebars in the book, too, uh, where I just – it wasn't enough for a chapter, but it's something I want to get to, and there is one about Jeremy Ronick in NHL 94 specifically. So uh, <laughs> that's definitely in the book. And honestly, that game – because let's be honest, for Hawks fans of that age – Watching games on TV was not readily available. I mean, half yeah. the games were not on. Um, and when you're a teenager, you got a bunch of other stuff going on. I learned a lot about the game and about other players around the league by playing NHL 94. That's how I learned who was on the Vancouver Canucks and the Hartford Whalers and all those teams. It was an educational tool for me, too. 
as I was growing as a fan. So that, that holds a special place in my heart. And uh, so I had to write about that because Jeremy Roenick and NHL 94, they are, they, you can't say one without the other. They're, they're synonymous. Yeah. I think Dave wrote a piece, um, you know, sometime this summer. Oh, yeah. During, about- yeah, during, during the quarantine. Yeah. <laughs> and it was just like Roenick rule. I think I, I tried to like, I took over the Hawks and just tried to score as many goals as I could with Roenick. I think I got to eight. Or no, I was trying game, to refute, somebody from Broad Street Hockey, I think, claim or someone somewhere in the SB Nation family and networks claimed that Mario Lemieux was better than Ronick in that game. So mm-hmm. I played against the Penguins with the Hawks and yeah, that's no. So, he, so what, what's great about those games is they use so few statistical categories to build a rating mm-hmm. that Ronick was the best because he had speed scoring ability and and hit power and that's what made that's what put him over the top was he was also one of the best checkers on the team so that gave him that huge rating too that's why he was the perfect player for that game and uh, if you don't know ea sports just relaunched they're calling it nhl 94 rewind Mm -hmm. and it has rosters up to when last season ended so updated rosters but the same exact game for the ps4 Xbox One, etc. It's really fun. Identical game with a 46 rated Brent Seabrook, by the way. <laughs> not, I'm not kidding. That is the actual rating of 46. That's mean. That's wow. too. That's mean. I agree. That's too low. Uh, you touched on, you know, talking about um, Carcillo's life after hockey. Were there other Hawks on that? You know, you look at, you know, just like the broadcast side of it, there's Sharp, Burrish, Olchek. There's a whole slew of them that are you know, doing the broadcast side, did you touch Yeah, there, a big chapter on Eddie O uh, on and off the ice. Obviously wrote about Pat Foley a lot in there. Um, as far as recent players off the mic, I don't think I wrote about Sharps uh, broadcasting or Burrish's at this point. Uh, but another guy whose post-hockey career is really interesting, Doug Wilson is a pilot. Mm-hmm. He flies for United Airlines and he's uh, United or American, one of the, whichever one of the big ones. And that's just his career now. So uh, no, not Doug Wilson. LC Cord. I misspoke. It was LC okay. Cord. Yeah, um, LC Cord is a pilot, which is which is super super cool. It's just I'm a, I was a great hockey player. I scored fifty goals, and now I'm a pilot. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's kind of I guess that's yeah. That's the they weren't quite multimillionaires in LC Cord's era, so they had to find another job once their hockey career ended. So yeah, I guess that would make sense. And what's pilot crazy is be, that's relatively recent. List, no, yeah, it's it's uh. You know, that's it's it's a cool and interesting career choice. I wonder if, you know, during his career, he threw an interest in that or whatever. But yeah, that's what he's doing now. LC Cord flying you around the United States and beyond. So you, you kind of touched on this earlier, so may have defeated the question I was thinking about. But uh, you, you said like you were able to touch on a lot of things in a few of the categories, kind of, you know, some wide ranging things. So was there anything that you didn't include in the book, like maybe a number 51, 52 that you're still agonizing over? Not at the moment, to be honest. I feel like I did a pretty good job of getting to everything I wanted to get to. The really, really old days were difficult to write about because there's so little published about it. The hardest chapter I had to write was the Arthur Wirtz, James Norris to Bill Wirtz buildup of the organization from Arthur Wirtz is a young real estate mogul growing into a sports owner to Norris and Burt splitting off 
that was a lot of minutia. It was a lot of stuff I didn't know about. And there's not a lot written about it. Same thing with uh, Major McLaughlin. There's not a ton written about him personally. So it took a ton of research to really kind of grind a chapter out about him. But I feel like I did them all justice. I hope. I think I did. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm going to hear from a family member saying, this is all wrong. But I'm like, (laughs) look, I'm going in libraries and looking at microfiche. And I'm trying to find information that's really, really hard to find. But yeah, I think... I don't know if I have any regrets. I probably will once I read it through again, but I feel like I did a pretty solid job of getting to everything that warranted. Of course, there were probably guys from the old days around the periphery that I didn't get. Like I didn't get to the cliff corals and those guys are really important to the organization and they remain that way. I didn't write anything about Troy Murray. Some of the guys who were the depth players of, of eras before, but if we're narrowing, if we're narrowing it down to 50, I think I did a pretty solid job, especially with the mindset of focus on the modern. And speaking of modern, I was going to shift to a few current Blackhawks questions, but before we do all that, uh, just tell the people where they can get your book. So November 10th, as you mentioned, it's out everywhere. So you can obviously go to Amazon, find it there. You can pre-order it now if you'd like. Uh, I encourage people to, if they have the ability to support a local independent bookseller near them, my favorite is Bookies Bookstores, uh, bookiesbookstores.com. There's one in Homewood. There's one in Beverly Mount Greenwood. 57th Street Books in Hyde Park is awesome as well. But if those are not nearby you or you don't have a place near you, you can go to bookshop.org and shop from there. If you'd like a signed copy, I'm actually shipping them out from my basement now, so you could probably get it before. If you order by Friday, you'll probably get it before release day. Go to madhousepod.com slash book. And there I'm sending out books signed with corresponding hockey cards from the 90s um, as bookmarks. So I'm holding a Brett Hull card here. I've got a Vincent Rendo card, Paul Eisenbart, all the yes. greats. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So that's madhousepod.com slash book for a signed copy. And it's a little different because typically in a non-pandemic world, I'd be going around signing books, meeting people. Right. Uh, but as that opportunity doesn't isn't presenting itself at the moment, I might I'm going to do my best to try to make myself available in areas around town. I'm going to try to go maybe get two cases of book and go near the United Center, go way up north. So if people want to meet me, if people want to buy the book or get the books they already bought signed, I'm going to try to accommodate that as best I can. Well, I'm, I'm looking very much forward to reading that book because like you said, Jay, there's, I feel like there's, there's a lot of stories that are still yet to be told uh, from about 100 years of Blackhawks hockey, especially in the last 20, 30 years. So uh, very much looking forward to it. Since we've had so much fun talking about some of the glory days of the Blackhawks, let's transition to now, which isn't quite as enjoyable as uh, years past have been. And I guess the main question I have for you is they've, the Blackhawks, like, they're talking about doing this rebuild thing now, which doesn't really feel like a total rebuild, um, but it seems like they're trying to put something together and make one more run at the cup with, while Taze and Kane are still, you know, the players that they have been and hopefully can be for a few more years. I guess just what are your general thoughts on whether or not this can and or will work? It's really tough to say because it's really not different from what they've been doing. And Stan Bowman right. has almost admitted that, but what I like about the fact that they're being transparent is now they're going to be held to that standard with every move they make. And when we had Sam Bowman on the Madhouse podcast, I said to him, you know, the bulls said we want to get younger and more athletic. 
and that haunted them for years because every time they made a move, we're going to be younger and more athletic. Then they go get Dwayne Wade. And people are said, what happened to younger and more athletic? And yeah. You said this, but you're not doing it. So now the Hawks have put themselves out there as this is what our plan is. If they're truly sticking to the plan they're saying there, which is keep the core intact, try to acquire younger established talent while developing your current players, I'm on board. That's fine. So if they decide to ship out Connor Murphy or Calvin DeHaan, while it may hurt the team in the short term, if they can get back a younger player they like or a draft pick or a prospect, whatever, that would support that theory. But if we're going to keep seeing them trading Dylan Secura for Brandon Peary, okay, maybe you have given up on Secura. That's fine. I'm not going to die on that hill. But there you're mm-hmm. trading a younger guy for an older guy weeks before you say you're not doing that, right? If they are true to the plan they're saying they're going with, then I'm on board. It just it remains to be seen. Clearly, Stan Bowman's going nowhere. Clearly, Jeremy Collins going nowhere anytime soon. So I could either complain about that, which will accomplish nothing, or just say, okay, now that you've laid it out, now that you've told us all what you're going to do, show us. Show us that you're going to do it. Show us that you can do it. Show us that it's going to work. Because, look, I'm, I'm not done watching Kane and Taves play. I hope not, yeah. I, I hope there's some more fun out of those two players in that whole group. Yeah, they're, they're still good. And, and when you look at the era we're in with the flat cap and uh, the hard cap, trading those guys is going to be really, really difficult anyway. So even if they wanted to try a full rebuild – you're going to get pennies on the dollar. You're going to have to take back bad contracts. So mm-hmm. you're maybe better off, you know, would you rather have Jonathan Taves or two Kelvin DeHans? You know what, you know what I mean? It's, it's kind of, right. yeah. you're going to have to take back salary if you're going to move it out. So you're almost better off just having those guys play here and, and, and figuring it out. Cause I think, I think Patrick Kane, is arguably playing the best hockey of his career now. He's showing no signs of slowing down. Now his the mental part of the game is caught up with the physical part of the game for him, and he's the most complete he's ever been. Taves, I think we've seen the downward trend a little bit, but he's still incredibly effective. And by the time Kirby Doc's ready to be, you know, center one, then Taves fades down to center two, and that's a pretty natural transition. But it's a matter of my question is. Where is the next Taves? Where is the next Kane? Where's the next Keith? Where's the next Seabrook? That remains to be seen. Is it Kirby Doc? Maybe. I don't know. He looked really, really great when he came back, but he still had some trouble finishing. Right. right? He'd pull off a dazzling move, but then would turn the puck over close to the goal or whatever. I've got to see him finish and start putting some numbers up. I'm confident he will, but I just don't know where that next tier of franchise players is coming from. He seemed really close to like recreating some version of the goal that Taves scored against Colorado in his rookie season. Like he's yes. been like inches away from doing it, but he hasn't quite pulled it off. Several and, times. Yeah, kind of building up what you said. Like the thing I've always been adamant about is that I, it doesn't seem like they have another Patrick Kane in the system. So they better figure it out before Kane starts to regress. Because when Kane starts going downhill, you know, forget about it. Then it's probably all over. Then, then yeah. Really- and the way, see, and that's the disconnect is the way you get that player is by being bad and getting high draft picks. Right. So it's kind of, well, how are you going to get another first overall pick? Not to mention, you know, one of the best number one overall picks of the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. That's, that's really, even if you did get the number one overall pick, you're not guaranteed it's going to be a Patrick Kane kind of a player. 
So it's tough. It's tough to draw that map. But if they have a team that's really, really deep, because you look at, you know, the Vegas Golden Knights don't have two generational superstar surefire Hall of Famers. Mark Stone's a really nice player. Shea right. Theodore is a really nice player. But they've got a lot of guys like that, right? Winnipeg, similar. Colorado, they've got McKinnon. But I don't know if he's quite Taves Kane level. Yeah. So it's it's you don't need those guys, but they're, they're certainly helpful. <laughs> it makes things yeah, easier. Definitely, definitely. But look, if, if Doc and DeBrinkett and Strom and Boquist and Mitchell, and if all these guys pan out to be what the Hawks hope they can be, now you're talking, right? Because now you've got a next generation of really, really good players, and it becomes easier to fill in that depth behind them. It's just a matter of where is it coming from, and it makes the Panarin thing that much more frustrating because there he was. There was your next, your next level of MVP caliber, game-changing you know, guy that you're going to have for the next long time. And you look at some of those bad deals signed and you look at some of those no movement clauses given. And that, that now that Artemi Panarin is Nikita Zadorov, who well, maybe Zadorov will be fine, that's not good enough. That's not a good enough ultimate outcome for that. This is Advertiser Content, brought to you by Frito-Lay. Hello, I'm Chip Murphy, here to get you ready for the big tournament. Tonight we'll break down... We break down who will be cutting... Cut! What are you two doing? Sorry, Chip. Prez here got his feathers ruffled when I told him Ruffles has zero chance of winning the title. And I was letting Dip know that she is not taking into account Ruffles' iconic ridges. Guys, it's March. We have to start talking about the tournament. We are. It is the 2023 Frito-Lay Snack-It. We're talking about big-time matchups between Cheetos, Smart Food, Lay's, Sun Chips, and more. Just head to the Frito-Lay Snack Bracket and vote for your favorite chip, pretzel, or dip for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. This sounds great. Keep up the good work. Just go to frito No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends 4-3-2023. Void wherever hidden. Here's worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. So I as listened to the score a fair amount, so I feel like I heard you and Rick Camp, and it was usually with Spiegel when you guys would, like, talk on the air about things of this nature – and then it's how did it transition from just random conversations on the air into the I'm Fat podcast? So it started out as a mythical podcast. We talked about it when we started when those conversations started going too long. We would just say, "Oh, we'll save it for our, for the Fat podcast." And we okay. eventually started calling it the I'm Fat podcast. And then for was it? I forget what the occasion was. It was either Christmas or Parkin's birthday or something. We actually recorded an episode. Rick and I recorded an episode almost as a gag. And we just started playing it for him. And we posted it and people loved it. So Rick and I looked at each other like, well, I mean, an hour a week, let's do it, right? Why not? There's never a, short, a shortage of things to talk about in the world of fast food or food challenges or just, you know, the struggles of being a fat guy, whatever. So um, we just started doing it. And then we took it independent back in the spring. We left the score and started producing it and selling it on our own. And it's going really, really well. So we're seeing like 
300% growth month to month. So it's huge. It's huge. It's, I mean, it's, we're not quite near the madhouse yet because that's got a six year lead on it, but it's growing very well. And it's doing really good. And people seem to really like it. Now, now Rick and I are sort of challenged with, okay, we've been doing this for 65 episodes. What are we going to do with it next? What's the next step of the pot? <laughs> right. So uh, we need to find the next gimmick or the next bit. We do do March Fatness. Uh, we've done two of right. those so far, which is crazy. We've been doing this for almost three years. That's wild. It does not feel that long. Um, but we got to find some other sort of, some other sort of hook. And that's what we're seeking. But we've got a T Public shop now where people can buy our t-shirts and everything. So it's really sort of taken off and it happened really organically. Just, hey, let's just do this on a whim to sort of, you know, knock home the joke that we make on mm -hmm. the air all the time. And then we saw that people really enjoyed it and listened to it. We're like, screw it, let's just do it. And then decided, hey, let's make some money off of it. And we've been doing okay. So it's been a lot of fun. I, I look forward to Mondays with Rick all the time because I just know that he's got stories saved up for me. And I've got stories saved up for him. And we don't plan much. I'll say, you know, Rick, remind me, I got something to say about socks. Uh, I had a pizza, and, and I don't, but I don't give him any information so we can, re we can react to what we're saying truly organically uh, and respond in the moment. Like, I don't preview our email questions. I just read them as we get them, as long as they're not, you know, four pages long and full of, you know, slurs and swears. Um, <laughs> but for the most part, I don't, I don't pre-screen or pre-think about the email. So we try to make it as organic and real and as close to a radio show as possible. So when I first listened to the I Am Fat podcast, I heard the word normie and I was yeah. like, oh, that's me. Mm -hmm. So I've got to ask, how did you guys come up with that term? And what is the like characterization of a normie? So a normie, we, it's funny. We just did the rankings last week and I should have written them down. I think it starts with skinny which would be rail thin, gangly. You know, you could see their ribs if they had their shirt off. That's skinny. Normie would be anyone from, I'd say like a 32 waist to a 36 if the legs are long enough. Like I'm a 36 waist, but I'm a 36, 29, which is basically just glorified shorts. Um, <laughs> and then we go, so we go skinny, normie. Then there's doughy, which would be dad bod, like Chris Pratt, Parks and Rec, kind of like not a fat guy, but you can see the potential is there. And if the shirt came off, you could probably grab a little bit of something. Then you got a fat. Then we moved after fat becomes Andy Reid. And then we decided last week that the ultimate fat is Yokozuna, who, if you don't know, was a wrestler in the 90s, who they said, you need to lose weight. And he said, okay. And I went away and gained 150 pounds. Um, oh and the term Yokozuna is reserved for the top sumo. So the best, the grand champion of the sumos is called the Yokozuna. So we thought that was the perfect sort of top level fat to reach for people. So yeah, skinny, normie, doughy, fat, Andy Reid, Yokozuna. That's the, those are the tiers. Okay. And so it's not, it's not a number. It's not a number. It's a body. Yeah. It's a body shape. All right. Yeah. Because you and you mentioned on the podcast this week when you're talking about Yokozuna, you mentioned the bonsai drop, which I was not aware of. Yeah, and it, like it reminded me of Rikishi, who was like I feel like the mid two thousands version of Yokozuna. That was but... maybe worse. That move was maybe worse. <laughs> and for those that don't know, the bonsai drop was Yokozuna would lay you in the corner, so your head would be close to the turnbuckle, 
and then he would climb up to the second level and then just sit, drop down and sit on your chest. Rikishi had a giant ass <laughs> and wore a leather thong. That's right. And then he would sit you down in the corner and then he would rub his butt cheeks on your face. I think that's worse. Because when you have 500 pounds sitting on your chest, you're probably not focused on the other part of it. You're like, just please get off me before I die. But when you're faced with a guy's butt right in your face, not great. I feel like the bonsai drop had to cr- crush someone's sternum. He like, did. Somebody had to. There was one that he hurt. There was a guy, because I think he slipped and fell. And it was, this is so, if you're not a wrestling fan, back in the day, when you would watch Raw or before that, whatever the show, like Superstars or whatever, mm-hmm. most wrestling shows were an hour long, and it would be Hulk Hogan would come out and fight Joe Blow. And Joe Blow is like this guy off the street, and Hulk Hogan would kick his ass around for 10 minutes, and that was the end of it. And then there'd be one good match at the end. Nowadays, they're all good matches. Yeah. So this guy that Yokozuna almost killed is one of these, they, they call him ham and eggers. He's like half-assed guys you never see or hear from again. But I do think he collapsed a guy's sternum or something because uh, he went to jump and his foot slipped on the rope and he put the full the full girth of his body on the guy. Because usually he'll jump off and land on his feet and then kind of soften the blow a little bit. But this one time he missed, and I know he did hurt somebody pretty badly. But back to the, the food things, though. I, I've been meaning to email you guys about this on your show, and I'll, I'll just say it here as a personal recommendation. I, you're, you're in the south suburbs somewhere, correct? Yeah, I'm in Homewood. Yeah, because I'm I'm just across the state border in Indiana. There's a oh, barbecue no. place here called Bombers. Oh. Are you familiar with this place? I'm not, but I'm writing it down. You you should try it. Like they, I I don't know if they have indoor dining open because some places in Indiana are still doing that. But it is best barbecue in I best barbecue in Northwest Indiana. What city is it? I, it's in Munster. It's on Ridge Road. Like if you on Ridge Road out of Homewood, just cross the state line, not too far. That's Can't, easy. Yeah, it's yeah, it's like in the back of a building, so you got to find a little bit. But it is a phenomenal place. All right. Um, I, I guess was, was there was there anything in particular that you've gotten? Was there or something that you've you've a recommendation you've had that still blows your mind that you guys got from the Ironclad podcast, or maybe just the the top tier food discovery you've had since you started that show? Well, the the problem is the recommendations really started coming when the pandemic hit. Right, so there's a bunch yeah. of places I want to try. Mm-hmm. This one is called Fratos, F-R-A-T-O-S. I'm going to look it up here on my phone. Sounds great. It's got a giant ass mozzarella stick stuffed with pepperoni, and it's about the size of a Twinkie. So this is the thing I need oh, to man. find. Uh, this is in Rose, uh, Schaumburg. So next time I'm out in Schaumburg, 628 South Roselle Road, fratospizza.com is the website. And everything on her Instagram looks insane. But uh, Russ Schneider, who is our official unofficial producer, sent this to us with these pictures, and they are unbelievable. So that's that's what I need to try. Because I've tried the very famous Leona's mozzarella stick, which is Twinkie size, but this has pepperoni in it too. That's a whole new dimension. So, yeah, that that's the one that has been recommended to us that I need to try. I'm trying to think if there's anywhere that someone has said, you've got to try this place, and I've gone. I don't think that's happened yet. Just because, you know, it's so hard yeah. to, to handicap if people are open or where I'm going to find somewhere to eat. If it's somewhere I'm not familiar with, that's sort of the tough part. But we so always take like 20, recommendations. Yeah, I feel like 2021 could be an even bigger year for the show because you guys could actually go to some more of these places. 
Here's hoping that would be great. And we, I'd love to do some, you know, we're equipped to do broadcasts out places. We, I've got equipment where mm-hmm. we can go sit in oh, a bar yeah. and do a show. So um, as soon as things start to get back to normal, I would love to do that. That would be phenomenal for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm very much look forward to that. Uh, and if you guys are able to start putting those together sometime early next year, but Jay, that, those are all the questions we had for you. Thanks so much for taking the time out. We really appreciate it. Once again, the book is, the Big 50, The Men and Moments That Made the Chicago Blackhawks. It's available everywhere starting Tuesday, November 10th. Jay Zawoski, thank you so much. I appreciate it, fellas. Thank you so much, too.